With over 7 billion people in the world, we all have one thing in common. Every day, we all get dressed. Welcome to Dressed, the History of Fashion, a podcast where we explore the who, what, when of why we wear. We are fashion historians and your hosts, Cassidy Zachary and April Callahan. And you are officially listening to the very first Dressed episode of 2019. Yay! Happy New Year! Happy New Year! Yeah, so Cass, as you know, last night was New Year's Eve, and I would ask you what you did last night, but we are <laughs> recording this in advance. So This is true. <laughs> and I don't have a crystal ball in terms of what I make it into on New Year's Eve this year, but I would venture to guess that I'm probably, like many of our listeners, currently vegging out in sweatpants recovering from last night's festivities. Yep. <laughs> it is the season to drink too much champagne, after all. <laughs> That is one of your and I favorite things to it's do together. <laughs> We've definitely killed some bottles together. Um, and, and more so than any other holiday, perhaps, a bunch of you probably did your partying and formal attire. So floor sweeping gowns, short sequin dresses, and of course, the tuxedo. That's right. And what better way to ring in the new year than with the history of the tuxedo? Yeah, and menswear is not my specialty. Um, oh past. <laughs> I know. I feel like I know a decent amount. Yeah, but I am far from wielding the depth of knowledge of our guest today, Chloe Chapin. She has like ninety-seven degrees in fashion <laughs> studies. She has an MFA in costume design from Yale, a master's in fashion and textile studies from FIT, and she's actually currently finishing her PhD in American studies at Harvard, where she is focusing on the history of American menswear. This sounds like a lot of reading. Well, that's kind of funny that you say that, because on more than one occasion, I've sent her a text message being like, hey... What's up? How's it going? And she just responds with a photo of like 50 books that she has to read. <laughs> well, in that case, thank you for taking a break, Chloe, from all of that reading and joining us today on Dressed. Welcome. Thank you for joining us today on Dressed, Chloe. Thank you so much for having me. Yes. So this is probably going to be a little bit of um, a, a school of the obvious statement, <laughs> but I do think it's important to say that the the tuxedo is, of course, a very specific type of suit, and we're going to get into some intriguing nuances about what that means in a little bit. But before we do, I'd like to have a general discussion of the history of men's suits, because, you know, while suits are a fixture of the male wardrobe today, this was not always necessarily the case. Um, up until the Renaissance, in terms of talking about Western European men's dress, you know, it consisted of hose and various types of robes or tunics, not necessarily suits. So first of all, how do you like to define a suit? And what can you tell us um, about the early history of the suit? That's a great question. So as far as I'm concerned, there are basically two different ways to define the suit in terms of fashion history. And the early version is the one introduced by Charles II in England after the Restoration the British diarist Samuel Pepys writes about it in his diary in 1666, October the 8th. He says, the king hath yesterday in council declared his resolution of setting a fashion for clothes, which he will never alter. It is to be a vest. I know not well how, but it is to teach the nobility thrift and will do good. And so this thing that he called a vest is actually what we would call a coat, which was a little bit less structured than the previous fashions for doublets. And it fell all the way down to the knee. Mm -hmm. And he didn't invent that garment. The ancient Persians had had a similar garment since like the Bronze Age, but he probably encountered it when he was in exile on the continent. So he introduced it to Britain. And because he was the king, he did it, you know, through a proclamation. And then due to England's political and economic dominance, the fashion caught on in other countries and Western Europe, and eventually their colonies around the world. So Initially, this long coat was worn over these really wide petticoat breeches that had already been really popular. Which are fabulous if you ever look at 17th century paintings. They're so weird. Uh, <laughs> Samuel Pepys also writes about that. He has a friend who comes over one day and he's so embarrassed because he said he's been walking around all day with both of his legs through one side of his <laughs> They're so wide, he couldn't tell. I love those historical fashion faux pas. But so those breeches kind of fell out of fashion after the arrival of the coat, probably because it fell to the knee. So you couldn't really see them. It wasn't worth the you know money to be spent on them. So 
So then there also is there's sort of two layers. There's the vest and the coat. And initially they were basically the same garment um, before the vest lost its sleeves and got shorter. So but it was those three garments that kind of evolved together through the next century, which was eventually called the suit. And sometimes it was fashionable for all three of those garments to have matching fabrics. And sometimes it was fashionable for them to all have different fabrics. But essentially, that's sort of the the precursor, the early history of the suit. Yeah. So we're looking at like a like a combo of a coat, a vest or a waistcoat, and pants or breeches, essentially. So the other way that you could define that suit, um, which you might call the modern suit, would be after the turn of the 19th century. So it just sort of depends on how you want to define the suit. The, the concept is more or less the same, but there are notable enough differences that you could really conceive of them as kind of different concepts. Right. One of my all-time favorite fashion history quotes is from a really seminal scholar in our field, Anne Hollander, who passed away recently. Um, but she was actually an art historian who, who frequently worked through the lens of fashion and dress. And she wrote a wonderful book that I highly recommend. I'm sure it is on your shelf at home, um, Sex and Suits. <laughs> and she says in the book that, um, quote, men's suits are neither postmodern nor minimalist, multicultural nor confessional. They are relentlessly modern in the best classic sense. And, and really what she's getting at here is that the male suit is one of the most enduring styles in the history of fashion or dress. Um, but this doesn't necessarily mean that the silhouette itself resisted change, which you just touched upon. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about the stylistic changes that occurred in men's suits as we move from the 17th century into the 18th century? Because you were talking about the petticoat breeches, but this changes. Right. So there's this real shift that happens in aesthetics about 100 years later, around the time of the American and then the French revolutions. Um, so by this point, the coat has lost its full skirt, um, though it retained sort of vestiges of it in the back um, as the front got cut away um, in what today we would call a tailcoat. And the front was generally cut straight across at the waist around this period, as was the vest underneath after military fashions. And it now had a lapel, which it didn't originally have, a collar. And, but the first really major shift that happens is in the fabrics, which change really quite dramatically and irreversibly. So before this period, all of these garments, at least for the most fashionable men and therefore the most rich, they would have been cut quite simply, but they were made out of very luxurious materials. So these like lush velvets and embroidered silks. I mean, the fabrics that you see on extant garments are just astonishing. They're so like you would never see anything like that in a fabric store today. Yeah. The fashions then at this point shift to dark woolen fabrics, which were really, you know, inspired from military uniforms. And the thing that's interesting about the shift to wool is that wool functions quite differently than silk does. You can stretch it um, when heated, for instance. And this is what starts happening in the construction of coats. You get higher collars and wider lapels and more shaping through the torso and over the arm size. And those things just weren't possible with silk. Right. The first British tailors in Savile Row were former military tailors from the Napoleonic Wars. And so they were used to the ways that woolens could be manipulated and fitted much more close to the body than previously had been the case for all of these, like, you know, embroidered satins. And that all happens really, like, quite gradually during the last quarter of the 18th century and the beginning of the 19th century. But for me, the thing that really kicks this new aesthetic into the, the more modern version of the suit is the introduction of trousers, yes. which happened in the 1820s. Because before this, so men had been wearing breeches that like buckled under the knee along with hose and buckled shoes or um, towards the end of the century, these tight pantaloons that are sort of like leggings or skinny jeans. Yeah, I'm thinking of Beau Brumel right now. Yes, exactly. So breeches were worn for court dress until like well into the 19th century. But for all other forms of dress, aside from riding horses, trousers took over fairly rapidly once they got popular in the 1820s and breeches totally went out of style. And so those early suits, they still kind of look pretty old fashioned to our eyes because they have kind of a, an hourglass silhouette and these puffed sleeve caps. But to me, they sort of still really count as the modern suit once trousers are involved. Yeah. And I think that, you know, like you said, fashion studies owes this huge debt to Anne Hollander. She really 
laid the foundation for a lot of the things we're still wrestling with today. And and really, no writer seems to have replaced her as a kind of accessible, all-encompassing tome for the role that fashion plays, especially from an American perspective, because so many writers about fashion are British. Right, right. But one thing I, I feel like we should push back against is the way she defines the suit as modern, because she's not the only scholar that does. A lot of people make that connection. But I, I feel like it has a bit of a paternalistic quality in relation to the suit. And you see that show up a lot with discussions of the suit, like coming up in other parts of the world to replace traditional or non-Western dress, which right. I think is a product that many people would argue more of colonialism and power rather than some sort of like universal enlightenment of aesthetic modernity as discovered and displayed through men wearing suits, which is kind of just a random assortment of garments. Right, right, right. And, and you know, it all goes back to um, one of our earliest episodes that we did was on Elizabeth Hawes, who is a, a champion of, of men wearing skirts or non-bifurcated garments. It just makes sense, mm-hmm. right? If you travel in Asia or if you travel in Morocco, like men are comfortable. Right. So, yes. I want to touch on, um, you were talking about as we transition at the tail end of the 18th century. Tell us a little bit about Anglomania, because um, we're talking about a little bit about colonialism. What is this and what impact did it have on men's fashion? So I think a useful thing to start with is like, what is fashion? Because I think fashion studies tends to think of fashion as this sort of universal aesthetic idea that is quite problematic because of how it positions itself around relationships to power. So because it always depends on on who is wearing it. Right. And of course, what you're talking about are not just the richest people of whatever community you're in, but then also the richest of those rich people in the most powerful and rich countries. So when we talk about Anglomania, like that term obviously wasn't used in England because they were already English. And so that term is a French term that's like, because, because so much of fashion is talked about from the French perspective because we think of France as being this fashion capital. So certainly the French were inspired by the British around the time of the French Revolution. And that's just because of the difference in the way that the aristocracy dressed, where as in France, it was all based around this palace culture that, you know, the courts of Louis the 14th, 15th, 16th was very different than the landed gentry in England. And so because they all lived on their estates and then only came into town for the season, there there was sort of a more rustic quality to their dress where, you know, the French would see them as backwoods, which is the same way that they both thought of America at the time, of course. And so it's, you could call it a casual influence. um, Although that's sort of a misnomer because it's not like it was less expensive. Right. It just was more suited to things like writing than palace life. So it would include things like leather buckskin breeches and tall riding boots and um, things like that. You're seeing like almost like an influence of like hunting and sportswear. Mm -hmm. Although it wouldn't have been sort of considered that at the time because those were categories of dress that really came out in the 19th century with the proliferation of sort of pre-mass manufacturing, but the idea that there were different types of dress that one could have in one's wardrobe. Yeah. And and you lead us into a really pertinent point, <laughs> which is the topic of formal versus informal dress. You know, our modern day notion is that, and I'm I'm going to speak very generally here, that daytime styles are supposed to be more casual than those worn in the evening. But in the past, this was not always necessarily the case. Uh, And and I realize that we have never spoken about this undressed before. But will you talk a little bit about the varying levels of formality and their perceived appropriateness for certain times of day? Yeah, that's another really interesting thing that's happening in this shift between these revolutionary periods into the 19th century. Because before, formality really had to do with location or occasion, you know, with the highest being court dress. 
And even within court dress, there would be different levels of formality depending on what type of occasion it was. And so there's this shift that happens with the around the rise of democracy, where levels of formality have to do more with time of day than where you are or where you're going. So suddenly, and I really haven't found like good sources to show or anyone really discussing how that transition comes about. It's a place that would be really interesting to hear more people talking about this transition. So, so people start dressing more for time of day than for where they're going. You know, they wear morning dress in the morning and afternoon dress in the afternoon. And, and the, the garments are then named after time of day. And all, dinner practices are also changing around this time, too. So it's not just fashion that's changing. It's the whole social intercourse yes. um, where dinner, you know, had once been the main meal of the day that would take place in the daytime. Suddenly it happens in the evening. And of course, this is another sign of conspicuous consumption because it's more expensive to light your home in the evening because it's dark outside. And so all, all of formality is really a performance of class because it's all about having extra. You know, you have the nice set of china, you have the nice dishes, you have the fancier parlor, you have your dinner dress, which is different than your daytime dress. And you even have a different set of manners for formal occasions. So, um, but all of those things are about extra, which means, of course, having the luxury and the knowledge of how to perform that. Right. And also etiquette. You know, we see this proliferation at the beginning of the 19th century and increasingly as we move into the 19th century of all these etiquette books. These things were so completely intricate, like how you would greet if you're going to visit, if you're a man and you're going to go visit a woman that you were friends with, how well you know that woman could dictate if you took off your gloves when you went inside and where you placed your hat. And if you messed that up, it was considered a social faux pas. Oh, yeah. And the etiquette guides are so interesting because some of them will give you really specific details about, you know, when to touch your hat in public, you know, when you run into someone, you know, or how soon you must respond to a dinner invitation. But a lot of them are much more vague. They are more about encouraging people to do right and have good manners without actually really telling you what that means. Right. It's all insiders club, you know, and it was really marketed for the growing middle class um, because the aristocracy doesn't need to have better manners. It's about people who want to in it as participating in a higher strata of society. Those are the people who need those reference guides, sort of like fashion magazines today. You know, people who are fashionable don't read fashion magazines. It's for people who want to emulate that. And again, that's another marker of class. Right. So um, speaking of like marker of class and, you know, social pressure, I'd like to touch on something that has always fascinated me about menswear, especially during this period of the 19th century. And that is that there's this very real social pressure for men to conform to this very narrow and prescriptive dress code, you know, and any kind of like aberration from the established canon of the silhouette or the color palette, you know, any aberration from that held connotations of transgression whether that be social or sexual, you know, can you speak to this? And also what is the legacy of this in menswear today? Yeah. I love talking about uh, gender in this period. And I think to, to bring in another early fashion scholar, I want to talk about John Carl Flugel, who is a psychologist. (laughs) So he wrote this book in 1930 called the psychology of clothes and again, it really is still sort of foundational in the field of fashion studies. And so he calls this sh- this great shift that happens in from the 18th to 19th century. He calls it the great masculine renunciation. And he says of this period that man abandoned his claim to be considered beautiful. He henceforth aimed at being only useful. And so that really, I think, sort of encapsulates this different in a through a gendered lens Mm -hmm. where once the real division was about class where anyone of the aristocracy male or female would wear clear signs of wealth 
through expensive fabrics and high heels and lacy cuffs and powdered wigs and all things that are totally impractical and are very costly to buy and to maintain. And I just I just want to interject here. That would be both men and women, like the, wearing the lace, wearing the wigs, wearing the makeup, wearing the high heels, wearing the all the colors. It, 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 gender didn't necessarily dictate one versus the other. Right. I mean, gender dictated other things like pants versus skirts or courses versus no corsets. But the fabrics and a lot of the accoutrement were the same. Yeah. So this shift that happens is quite radical, not necessarily because it's a shift, because fashion is sort of always about change. That's what fashion does. The thing that is unusual about the suit is that it stops changing. Mm -hmm. So if we got to the place where trousers were incorporated and men had these like puffed sleeve hourglass, you know, frock coats, um, and that lasted for maybe 20 or 30 years. And then all of a sudden they did something else, like started wearing high heels or pantaloons again, or the petticoat breeches came back, or we went back to doublets or something like that, right? Like that that could have been another thing that happened. We think about the suit as sort of so standard, it's like essential to being masculine, but it really was sort of a fashion accident as all fashion kind of is. And it's interesting the way that it's talked about. A lot of writers will say that it's due to the rise of democracy that that people wanted a visual marker for this new idea of equality. But of course, that equality was really equality for men and mostly for white men, particularly if you're talking about America and landowners. Right. So it really wasn't, you know, we t- the idea of democracy in this period is thought of as, as like true equality. And it really wasn't. It was just equality for a certain category of people. But those are the category of people that could afford to introduce and maintain a new style of dress. And so it really benefited them, those people who were probably not nobility and wanted access to social or political power. So it was very useful for them to um, have a visual marker of their sameness with people who were descended from the aristocracy or, you know, had more wealth or prestige socially somehow. And so it's really interesting when you talk about, you know, how that comes into today's fashion, because you can still look at menswear through that same lens. I call it urban camouflage. Like it's not always about the suit. I mean, if you go to Wall Street, like you definitely see suits, but I grew up in California and no one wears suits in California, at least not where I, you know, saw people. So there it might be, you know, board shorts and Hawaiian shirts or, (laughs) you know, it depends on where you are. Yeah. Or what industry you're in, you know, even when you talk about the a similar uh, income bracket. If you look at Wall Street bankers, they dress really differently than like tech bros in Silicon Valley. There's a, a different aesthetic culture. So, you know, you might be wearing like a Zuckerman hoodie uh, and jeans and plain t-shirts, but that still is kind of an established uniform that, that, that often men are more likely to conform to. There's this sort of idea that in women's dress, the worst thing that could possibly happen is that you show up to a, especially in formal wear, that you show up to something, an evening occasion dressed exactly like someone else. Whereas for men, that's like the ideal thing to happen. Yeah. It's like opposite sides of the coin. Mm -hmm. If you go to prom and you buy your dress at a mall, there are like national databases now where if you buy a prom dress, you have to enter what high school you go to. And then that store will not sell that same dress to anyone else who's going to go to your high school. (laughs) So it's like regulated through not just like social etiquette, but there are actually now systems in place. Exactly. Wow. So now that we have examined the early history of the suit, I'd like to take a brief sponsor break. And when we come back, let's talk about the tuxedo. Welcome back. This may sound like a very straightforward question, but but Chloe, what is a tuxedo? 
Because I think some people might be surprised to learn it's a little bit more of a complex inquiry than it initially seems. Yeah. So a tuxedo is what you would call um, black tie or semi-formal evening wear. And this consists of a black dinner jacket and trousers worn with a white shirt, a black bow tie, and traditionally a black cummerbund, although those seem to have gone out of style. The more formal white tie is a tailcoat instead of the shorter tuxedo jacket, which is worn with a white bow tie and a white waistcoat. And people have started calling this a tuxedo as well, which I suppose I should get over. But really, they're two <laughs> We're sticklers for the accuracy as fashion historians. So the thing that makes a tuxedo different from a daytime suit are really just a couple of things. Um, the trousers that you would wear with a formal suit often have a satin stripe down the outseam, which they don't have to have. But again, that's kind of a marker that you can afford two pairs of black trousers, one that would definitely not be worn in the daytime and one that would only be worn in the evening. Mm -hmm. Um, And then the difference in the jacket is in the lapel, which has a shiny either satin or silk file lapel instead of the wool body coat. And if it's a shawl collar, the whole thing will be that contrasting fabric. But if it's a notch lapel or a peak lapel, the collar will be the same as the wool. And it's just the lapel that will have the contrasting fabric along with the buttons and sometimes like the welt pocket detail. So basically it's a marker of time of day and also class that you have all of this extra income in order to be able to afford very specific niche types of garments. Right. The Formal wear had been in place for quite a long time by the time the tuxedo came into fashion. And some of the earliest mentions that I have found for it are actually in tailoring advertisements. Mm. Um, And it's not a surprise that tailors would be so thrilled because you can imagine if formal wear changes so little um, or so slowly that men would be like, I'm good. I've got my dinner suit. And the tailors would be like, are you sure you don't want another one? (laughs) Uh, (laughs) It was like a really easy way that like suddenly every client that they had would come in and get an additional suit made for their semi-formal occasions. And, and, And now we think of the tuxedo as being formal, formal wear. But in the past, it was like this interstitial kind of semi-formal style of dressing that I had no idea that the term tuxedo actually has origin in the United States and in New York State specifically. Can you tell us how this style of dress came to be called the tuxedo? Yeah. So there's, again, sort of two different histories here, one of which is the style of garment that we now call the tuxedo, and the other is that word itself. So the the history of the style starts around 1865 in England when the Prince of Wales, the future Edward VII, um, commissioned his tailor, Henry Poole, to make him a tailless dinner jacket um, that he could wear to dinner. Um, So it would be formal, uh, but it would be more comfortable. That was what he wanted. So because good, properly cut tailcoats were um, quite rigid and men complained that they were uncomfortable. So they had these tightly fitted fiddleback constructions with lots of padding through them. And this shorter tailless garment was modeled after the more casual smoking jackets that were popular in the 19th century. Um, They were sort of cut more like modern blazers They were roomier, they had wider arm size, they had less padding. And the Prince of Wales was sort of a bit of a maverick and a rule breaker in terms of style. Um, So he would never have worn this jacket in the presence of his mother, Queen Victoria. You know, things were just not done. Downton Abbey, the TV show, has um, a couple of good scenes where the Dowager Countess um, is so disgusted with her son for wearing this casual dinner jacket when she's... (laughs) Or she's concerned if it's dinner, you're dressed for dinner, and that means you're wearing a tailcoat. Right. So that's the origin of the style. And it was probably brought to America um, via this um, millionaire named James Brown Potter, who his wife was apparently quite a looker. She became uh, an actress. 
and the Prince of Wales was very interested in pretty ladies and he invited yes, he was. to spend the weekend at Sandringham, <laughs> um, his estate. And at the time, the servants would basically arrange all of the details. So, you know, my valet would call your valet and say, what are we wearing to dinner? Sort of like how if we were going to go to a party, like if, if you invited me to a party with your friends, I might call you ahead of time and be like, what are we wearing to this party? Like, is it jeans and t-shirts or are we getting dolled up? Yeah. So it's sort of like the male 19th century version of that. Uh-huh. And so the Prince of Wales butler valet had potters sent to Pools, his tailor, to have him made the same jacket so that he would be wearing the same thing as the Prince of Wales because you know, he wouldn't want to be uncouth and wear something different, which was obviously done quite a bit ahead of time. There was a lot more planning that went into these things than we <laughs> might know today. And so probably um, a lot of these stories are apocryphal, but probably he then brought this style back to America. And he <laughs> was one of the founders of this we should, we might think of it like a gated community today outside of Manhattan called Tuxedo Park with Pierre Lorillard, who was another wealthy American financier. And the word tuxedo was, that that was the name for the lake there. It's a probably Native American word, possibly an Algonquin word, like tuxipo or tuxito, depending on how you pronounce it, which either means clear running water or crooked river or something like that. So Mm -hmm. there was this Algonquin name for the lake, the tuxedo lake, that they built this community around. And then they had a annual ball at the Tuxedo Park Club. And so either Potter started wearing it there and it became notable through his connection um, there's also a story that says that the son of Pierre Lorillard Griswold Grizzy um, wore it at the autumnal ball in um, 1886. But however it happened, somewhere around 1886, this garment was associated with this particular place, the Tuxedo Park Club. Um, and it was because of that that this dinner jacket started to become a tuxedo jacket. But that term still really is a very American term. You know, we think of it as being completely standard, but it's like using inches or like eight and a half by 11 paper. We think that everyone, we're like the only country on earth that does those things. But (laughs) everyone else is weird, even though we are the outlier. So the tuxedo is the same way. In Britain, they call it the dinner jacket. And in most other countries, they call it the smoking mm-hmm. or some derivative of that because of its early association with smoking jackets. Um, not that it was ever a smoking jacket, but the, the style was based on that construction. Um, so that's how it got its association. So that's what it's called in most other countries. So I'm really glad you brought this up, the the termless smoking, because clearly we right now have been speaking about menswear, but I'd like to make the very real point that the tuxedo is not exclusively worn by men. Women also too have historically adopted the style. Um, and, and who are some of the early female adopters of the tuxedo? What I find interesting is that the word tuxedo um, was initially used to advertise resort wear rather than evening dress Mm. also because of this association with the tuxedo park club um so in 1920s advertisements you you can find tuxedo tennis dresses or tuxedo sweaters and they have no visual relationship to evening dress that's just how what that word connotated to people at the time the first reference that i remember seeing to the word tuxedo being used as like an intentional appropriation of male evening dress was um, by Men Boucher in the 1950s. Oh, wow. Still dresses. Um, you know, it was it was like a cocktail dress, basically, but in contrasting fabrics to make it reference male tuxedos. So in terms of tuxedos with pants, the first real um, like widespread adoption of it was through Yves Saint Laurent's collection, Le Smoking Collections. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's a, you know, 
Parisian fashion designer. And in 1966, in his um, autumn winter collection, he showed this collection with, I think it was two at the time in this first collection, women's pantsuits that were based, clearly based on male tuxedos. And they're very silly. They, you know, have these like very 1960s kind of baby doll hairstyles and <laughs> has a bolo tie, <laughs> ruffly shirt fronts. But that collection has run every year. I mean, he designed it until he retired in, I think, 2002. And all of the other designers under East Saint Laurent have continued this tradition. So that's kind of the, the ideal marker for the tuxedo and women's wear. Although it's also sort of um, misnamed, too. There's a, this very famous fashion photograph of a uh, Le Smoking collection um, taken by Helmut Newton for mm-hmm. French Vogue in 1975. And everyone calls it a tuxedo. It is demonstrably nothing like a tuxedo. It's a pinstripe suit. No tuxedos are pinstripes. <laughs> Doesn't have a shiny lapel. It's like a, I think it's a peaked lapel actually. And there's no black bow tie. There's no cummerbund. It's like she's wearing a silk, a white silk blouse and a, what looks like a navy pinstripe men's suit, but it just had it, whether or not it was in, if it was in the Le Smoking collection, then of course it was called Le Smoking, regardless of where that influence came from. So we have this sort of laziness around what, what fashion journalists, if maybe not fashion scholars use the word tuxedo to refer to. And that's definitely one of the trespassers. Right. Well, I mean, it, it basically, it's like, oh, there's a woman in a suit. Yeah. It must be a tuxedo. There's a, an image of Colette uh, wearing a suit that is often referred to as a tuxedo. And again, it's clearly a black daytime suit. Like there's not a contrasting lapel. She's wearing it with a like regular shirt and a regular necktie. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So there's there's nothing about it that is a tuxedo. Yeah. And, you know, in terms of like things that have been going on in the past few years, so much press attention was given to Hillary Clinton's pantsuits during the last election. You know, if, if you ask me an undue amount of attention, because I really began to find it irritating that people were really paying so much attention to her wardrobe rather than what her message was on the issues. But in your opinion, like, why is it that we're still having these discussions about women wearing suits, women in pants. Like, why and how does the suit connotate power in both the male and the female wardrobe? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, you're talking about the impact of visual culture and the kind of symbolism that fashion can portray. So if the suit has been worn for, you know, over 100 years, almost 200 years, by men. And if men are or have been traditionally in positions of social, economic, political power, um, it makes sense that then therefore this garment, this ensemble also becomes kind of a marker of that power. Mm -hmm. I mean, the word suits is often used interchangeably to mean men, right? So those two things, like a suit is basically a visual marker of masculinity, but also of power, depending on how you look at it, Western power, political power, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, I think it's interesting that we're talking about 1886 and this um, origin of the tuxedo, because a hundred years later in 1986, um, this historian, Joan Wallach Scott, published an article in the American Historical Review called gender as a useful category of historical analysis, uh, in which she argued that gender is a primary way of signifying relationships to power. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that that is something that fashion scholars could really benefit from having paying more attention to, that when we talk about, that, you know, there's so many people talk about fashion and gender, but we don't often talk about the the power imbalance that lies underneath those issues. And that certainly was the case with Hillary Clinton and the pantsuits. And it's not just her, it's, you know, every woman in power. Of course. It's, and, you know, p- part of it is because we're so used to seeing women wear different things. We're so, you know, the, there's there also is the, you know, what are you wearing campaign, uh, you know, ask, what is it, ask better questions. 
to women on the red carpet where men get asked these like deep, you know, philosophical questions about their roles and their careers. And women are just asked like, who are you wearing? Designer for the dress you're wearing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, there's another good example of that. I think is the, um, the golden globes earlier this year in January of 2018, where women, uh, many women chose to wear black garments Mm -hmm. as, um, solidarity or protest because of the me too movement. Mm -hmm. Um, and I certainly thought that was interesting. It definitely made a visual statement, but you know, personally, I think it would have been more revolutionary for them to not wear heels because heels is kind of the same kind of symbolic marker of femininity right. and the same suits is for men. You know, it's not like I have anything against heels. Um, it's just the ubiquity of them and the the way that they are, women's bodies are policed around them. At the Cannes Film Festival, I think they still won't let you walk down the red carpet if you're not wearing heels. Wow. I had no idea that there was like a quote unquote, like dress code. Oh, yeah. And there are some um, directors, even like male directors whose wives weren't wearing heels because of age or discomfort or like, you, I don't want to wear heels. Um, sorry if I'm not supposed to say it on your podcast. <laughs> uh, and they, they still won't let someone nominated walk down the red carpet if they are in the company of a woman who is not wearing heels. Yeah, there was someone that had like a broken ankle and they were like, you can't walk down the red carpet because you're not wearing heels. That's crazy. Yeah. And we we come back, we come back to this again, again, and again, again on this show, talking about like how women's bodies are policed vis-a-vis fashion. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, it, it, it dates, it's, it's a centuries old tale and, and it hasn't changed, obviously. So. One last thing I'd like to talk about is that throughout the history of fashion, we kind of see this ongoing impulse towards informality. You know, you mentioned earlier that the tuxedo originally was a semi-formal garment. Now we think of it as a formal garment. And it's oftentimes that these kind of informal garments or silhouettes were initially worn in the privacy of one's home And that one or two generations later, these same styles or silhouettes are now like in the public sphere as fashion proper. You know, the the popularity of athleisure or street styles today is a really good example of this. And, And, you know, high fashion runways are chock full of street style. So, so given this kind of arc of like the informal becoming the formal, what do you think the future of formal wear is as it stands today and specifically in terms of the tuxedo well first of all say that i really am more of a historian than a fashion forecaster so (laughs) i really look back more than forward um because you know there's basically two things that can happen right is that it can go out of style um, there will be no more formal wear, or it can have a resurgence. Mm-hmm. And generally, resurgences come with something new, right? It's unlikely that there'll just be a resurgence for the same old thing that people got tired of before. It could happen. But I sort of think it's more likely that there will be, if formal wear continues, um, that there will be a maybe greater parameter of what is allowed is not really the right word, but seen, popularized, whatever. Mm-hmm. And I think that um, that can come from a couple of places, one of which is the sort of influence of different ideas of masculinity, which are being brought in through performances of sexuality or just gender as a much more sort of fluid idea mm-hmm. um, with everything being p- pulled into question. You know, can you wear a tuxedo with a blouse? Can you wear a tuxedo with heels? Can you wear a tuxedo with shorts? Can you wear a tuxedo with long hair? Like all of those. Or or can you wear a pink tuxedo? Exactly. And color, I think, is the the other place. And and I think where you see that a lot is particularly in African-American men Mm -hmm. who um, seem to be much more historically interested in pushing boundaries around color when it comes to men's suits. I mean, one of the great examples of that is the, um, the, the premiere for Black Panther, the idea of formal wear on that red carpet was just so different and so much more creative than right. I think any other place I've seen. So I think those would be, you know, interesting places to look for inspiration, you know, as 
as much as this uniformity is very exclusive, uh, it traps out people who don't have the money or the gender to participate in that uniform. As much as it is exclusive, a lot of men also think of it as kind of a prison too. Yeah. You know that that um, they aren't allowed to or encourage themselves. It. Yeah, through any kind of sartorial deviance, much less like showing their feelings or hugging each other or you know anything like that. So that that it'll be interesting certainly to see what the next trends for that is. I mean, the places we see formal wear are aside from like the very rich. The places that we are most likely to see formal wear are celebrities on red carpets mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. who are artists. And those artists are often in partnerships with fashion designers who are also artists. So there's sort of a, a, an inherent kind of rule breaking nature to those events. And then musicians at the symphony who are sort of on this, are they artists or are they servants kind of fence mm-hmm. and then waiters or or butlers or doormen you know who who function in a more servant like role and, you know another sort of interesting part of the history of formal wear men's formal wear is um, the servant class often would adopt the formal wear of a previous generation mm-hmm. so like I don't know the uh, footmen on Cinderella's coach you know were wearing powdered wigs and breeches, even though the, what was, you know, what the prince was wearing trousers, right? Because they're, they're servants. Um, they're, they're dressed in this livery, but that livery is reflective of a kind of formal idea of an earlier generation. Right. Tradition. Exactly. But, but if you think about how fashion used to move a bit faster in menswear, you get to the end of the 19th century. And if, servants are starting to adopt formal wear of a couple of generations prior, but that formal wear hasn't actually changed in the upper class, then there's no difference between what the butler is wearing and what the man of the house is wearing, um, which was quite confusing for people. That's another place that you see a lot of early public discourse around formal wear are like, you know, letters to the editor. People would write into the New York Times and say, you know, oh, this embarrassing faux pas where I gave my empty champagne glass to the man of the house. (laughs) Because they're all dressed alike. Exactly. Or I, you know, introduced myself to who I thought was running the party and it turned out that he was the butler, (gasps) you know, that, um, and so they were like admonishing people like, can't we have a, a servant uniform so you can better tell the difference between the upper class and the working class? Wow. You've given us a lot to think about on that term in terms of like how like prescriptive and narrow menswear can sometimes be or the social constraints around it. And unfortunately, we ha- we're out of time, so we have to leave off today. Thank you so much for joining us on Dressed, Chloe. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Yeah, I-, I know you just finished your semester. So um, please take a break, take care of yourself, and we're going to let you get back to all those stacks and stacks of books that are in your house. (laughs) Chloe, thank you so much for joining us to speak about menswear, the suit, and its specialized version as the tuxedo. April, I think it's really fascinating when you consider the fact that for more than 300 years, the three-piece suit has endured in the male wardrobe. So, you know, over the years, pants have really shifted in shape from the Petticoat breeches, Chloe mentioned, to knee breeches, to trousers. The length of the coat and waistcoat or vest has changed over time. But really, the elemental pieces of the three-piece suit have withstood the test of time. Yes, so much so that Anne Hollander in her book, Sex and Suits, that I mentioned earlier, she actually kind of jokingly referred to the male three-piece suit as, quote, irritating perfection (laughs) because it is so resistant to change. And this quote you know, has stuck with me from the moment that I read it more than 10 years ago. And with that, we conclude this week's episode. And whether you identify as male, female, or non-binary, may you consider the legacy of the three-piece suit in your wardrobe next time you get dressed. And Cass, this does it not only for us this week, but actually season one of Dressed, 
This oh is gosh. our last episode of the 2018 season. Yay! And we would like to <laughs> sincerely thank both our listeners and our guests for all of your support over this past year. It has really been a blast. But don't worry, we will be back very soon. We're going to take a tiny little break before we come back with season two to enjoy some time with our family and friends over the holidays. Yes, and I also plan on unpacking because I just moved last week and I am literally living in a sea of boxes. <laughs> but don't worry, as Cass said, we will be back on February 12, 2019, just in time for Fashion Week in New York. And in the meantime, you have a few weeks to catch up on any of our past episodes that you might have missed. Cass, would you like to give a little tease as to the subject of our first episode of season two? Because you did post some photos of yourself working on this episode on our Instagram stories a little while back. I would love to. Season two will begin with the one and only Christian Dior, the subject of the exhibition Dior from Paris to the World, which is on view now until March 3rd at the Denver Art Museum. So check out the exhibition if you can and be ready to tune in February 12th for our interview with the foremost Dior expert and the exhibition's curator, Florence Mueller. Yes, I cannot wait for this one. And perhaps we will post some teaser images for a few of our upcoming episodes that we already have planned on our Instagram feed, which is, as always, at dressed underscore podcast. And we do post images to accompany each week's episode there. And this is also our Twitter handle. And you can find us on Facebook at dressed podcast without the underscore. And also, we get a lot of messages asking for book recommendations. So just a reminder, we do publish recommended readings for each episode on our website, dressedpodcast.com. Hope all of you who bought holiday gifts at our merch store, tpublic.com forward slash dress, are enjoying them. And we promise to bring some new designs to the store while we are on break. So you can find those at, again, teepublic.com forward slash dressed. Many thanks to our producers, Holly Fry and Casey Pegram for all of their hard work on season one. We love you guys. Catch you soon in 2019.